Welcome to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenock. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning stories, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their cores very basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. To learn more about estate planning and how you can better serve your clients, visit wealthmanagement.com slash trusts dash states. Our monthly journal features tax law updates, wealth planning, retirement strategies, and much more written by thought leaders in the industry. That's wealthmanagement.com slash trusts dash estates. Now, my guest this week is Charles Lubar. Chuck is currently senior counsel at McDermott, Will & Emery, where he advises clients on all aspects of international tax and estate structuring and planning for individuals and their assets. He also provides corporate and individual tax planning for international investments and cross-border family business matters. Chuck served for several years with the chief counsel's office of the Internal Revenue Office in Washington, D.C. He has international experience that extends well beyond the United Kingdom and continental Europe and includes working with clients from Latin America, North America, the Middle East, Japan, and the U.S. He's held roles as managing partner, chairman of the international selection, vice chairman of the tax section, and senior counsel with a well-established and respected firm in London. Thanks so much for joining us, Chuck. Oh, happy to join you. I should say that I have retired from McDermott, Will & Emery. Uh, I did last year, middle of, toward the end of the year. Um, oh. But I do have my own advisory work that I do, and often with um, friends and uh, colleagues from McDermott Will. Well, I apologize for that, and, and, and congratulations, and hope you enjoy your retirement, Chuck. So normally, this is the point in the show where I tell you what celeb we're talking about, and then I kind of go into a brief story about them, sometimes not so brief. Um, however, Chuck has an entire career's worth of experience working with celebrity clients, about which he recently penned a, a memoir called An Improbable Journey, Music, Money, and the Law. Um, it's a real fun read. I read the whole thing, and I think it's a, for people who like this show, I think it's an attractive uh, sort of book, the weird in, connection of celebrities and, and tax law is a very specific audience, but I think it is our specific audience, which is why I've sort of gone out on a limb to, to plug this one. Um, so we're going to have Chuck tell a couple of his stories about working with celebs, uh, in this case, specifically Jim Henson and Michael Jackson, um, which I guess kind of makes Chuck the subject of today's episode instead of uh, any of the celebs. But to kick things off, Chuck, how did you first come to work with Jim Henson? Well, okay, I, <laughs> I'll give you as brief a resume as I can. Uh, I had been with the chief counsel of Internal Revenue Service. I lived in Africa for a couple of years, came to London. I started a brand new career joining a, a little entrepreneurial law firm that needed a tax lawyer. And it was run by a famous entertainment lawyer who'd been executive vice president of Warner Brothers, a man named Erwin Margulies, and along with Barry Sterling, 
corporate transactional lawyer, and I went in as their tax lawyer in 1971. In the case of Jim Henson, I had been approached by existing client of mine. At that time, uh, I think I was on my own. I'd set up my own independent practice after a few years with uh, the, the original firm, Margulies and Sterling. Had my own practice, and one of my clients said, listen, um, the general counsel of uh, Henson, the Henson organization in the United States needs some help. And it started as a very narrow issue. In fact, in some ways, as illustrative of my career, I did a tiny little piece of work on EU law for uh, the Henson Associate, uh, Associates in the United States had to do with royalty issues in the, in the EU. But about a year and a half, I guess, later, I got a call again from the general counsel of Henson Associates, and they said, listen, we, we have a real interesting, really interesting project for you, and we, need your, we really need your help. Um, Jim Henson, who, as you know, created the Muppet characters and effectively licensed them to Sesame Street, uh, Jim Henson wants to do a Muppet show entirely with Muppet characters. And he's tried a number of U.S. television networks and nobody's interested. But we found someone in the U.K., Sir Lou Grade, who runs a big group called ACC Communications. He is willing to finance the Muppet Show uh, for at least one season. But it'll all be shot in London. And so we're worried about not just the corporate tax issues associated with Henson Associates doing work in the UK, but also the myriad collection of puppeteers who are both in front of the camera and also technicians working the different limbs of the various puppets. Can you help us? So I said, I'll certainly try. And uh, as a result of that, of course, I met Jim Henson and a number of the puppeteers, became actually friendly with a couple of them, and put together a structure that works both on the corporate side and on the individual puppeteer side. To establish the timeline, right? It's, it's, it's weird to think about a time where the Muppets, this is before the Muppets were a monolith, right? There were this monolith, like the Muppets. They were just kind of random spinoff characters from Sesame Street still. So the idea of, oh, nobody wants the Muppet show is very, you know, it's, it's sort of hard to wrap your head around these days where the Muppets are this, this cultural <laughs> icon. Sure, but, but I, it was really up to um, Sir Lou Grade who said, I'll finance it for a year and see what happens. So, so talk he, a, a bit more about the tax issues here. The puppeteers, these were U.S.-based puppeteers, correct? Yeah, all of these puppeteers were U.S.-based. They would come to the U.K., as non-residents with a working visa, they would get paid uh, a certain amount of money for their role as usually uh, puppeteers for several of the puppets. Mm -hmm. Also, some of the people provided services as kind of directors or sometimes even cameramen. But we had to deal with the Inland Revenue on how how puppeteers are taxed in the United Kingdom. 
Now, in the old days, meaning this was would have been 75, 76, I guess, that they're pretty there's first of all a very favorable basis for the taxation of foreign people working in the UK. When you say favorable, favorable for who? Favorable for the people that worked as performers mm. or providing services. Because for one thing, they were even if they were resident in the UK for tax purposes, because they were here for a couple of years, three years, four years, they were if as long as they were not what's called domiciled in the United Kingdom, they were not taxed on any of their foreign income unless they brought it into the UK to live on. Mm. You were not domiciled in the United Kingdom if you were not born in the United Kingdom or didn't grow up uh, in the United, United Kingdom as a permanent resident of the United Kingdom, but you were here on a relatively short-term basis. Most of the foreign community that came to the UK, including myself, were non-domiciled, and there's a long history of what that means, but you could be here 10, 15, 20 years, not domiciled in the United Kingdom, because ultimately you're, you intended to return to your country of origin. And that described most of the puppeteers. Mm. So that meant the only tax liability they had was for their work in the United Kingdom, as long as they kept all of their other income, which included anything derived from capital that they had before they came to the UK. If they kept it outside the UK, didn't bring it in to live on, they just paid tax on the puppeteer income. Now, even there, the UK at that time was relatively unsophisticated in that if you had, as many of the puppeteers had, their own personal service companies, the income of the company was not taxed. The only income that was taxed was effectively the income that was received by them, essentially as employees. Mm -hmm. So long as they kept the two completely separate, basically. So yeah, they, the other they, income was they, right. in the and, United States. And, and, you know, if the, the, the particular loan out company, let's say, most of these loan out companies ended up paying most money out in dividends, or if they were S corporations, they would automatically tax um, whether or not it was distributed. But if the money was just paid out or bonused out at the end of the year, that might not have been picked up by inland revenue. They did not. They usually, in those days, they pretty much took the salary that was designated by the management of the entertainer or his agent or however he, he was advised. And I did not have a difficult time negotiating with the revenue the tax liability of the puppeteers because rel most of the time they had relatively modest salaries and they took out large bonuses or if it was an S corporation, it might be a dividend at the end of the year. Uh, that was not attacked by inland revenue. Mm -hmm. Now, interestingly, and this is germane for actually most of the uh, celebrity and non-celebrity entertainers I've represented over the years, this was too good to be true and couldn't last. Eventually, this was recognized in the OECD model tax treaties that dealt with entertainers. 
and sportsmen. And there was a whole raft of rule changes and treaty amendments that targeted the entertainment performers as well as the as well as sportsmen. So over the time over time, and now where I'm talking a period from mid-70s to today, um, the entertainers were hit significantly more so than they had been in the beginning. But all the puppeteers that I represented in those days um, got through without any real problems. But the problems, uh, I mean, the, the real interesting problems came when the laws changed. And as I flagged a little bit in, in my opening remarks, um, if you're a puppeteer, <laughs> you perform in front of the camera, albeit through a puppet. But let's say you have two or three people working on the same puppet. And let's say one uh, has a voiceover and another manipulates the limbs of the puppet. How does the Inland Revenue treat the taxation of a puppeteer's income, um, which is generally just polyglot collection of dollars, not, not specifying whether he's a puppeteer in the front of the camera or whether he's working on the limbs or, the, or just a voiceover. I, I can't get into too much more on that technical sense because there are a couple of cases um, that are kicking around in today's world that do involve those kinds of problems. But to go back to the basic question you raised about Jim Henson, I got to know him um, and he was both a puppeteer. He's a good example of puppeteer, or the producer, the owner of the intellectual property rights. So it really, you'd have to, when you dealt with the Inland Revenue, you would have to divide all those pieces up and see what was related to performing income in the UK what was related to other services in the UK. In those early days, I didn't really have a problem, but today I would definitely have a problem. Mm -hmm. And I would allocate often, and I've had this experience, I would allocate um, as much as I could to things that were recognized by the OEDC, OECD model treaty, which meant the treaty inclusive of the treaty between the UK and the US, I'd have to try to allocate uh, as much as I could get away with to any writing, any camera work, any directorship work, any producer work. And that's because the behind the scenes stuff is taxed that's more right. favorably yeah. than an on camera exactly. personality. Exactly right. And uh, that's a very hot issue right now. Mm -hmm. With the writer's strike going on, I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Okay. Well, anyway. Um, so that was on the puppeteer side. On the corporate side, um, we had a U.S. corporation uh, that wanted to produce a film or a series of uh, television shows in the United Kingdom. Uh, and I had to find a way that we could produce the material in the U.K. U.K. production company, um, U.K. studios, a lot of technical people in the in the post uh, post filming side to make the product 
uh, saleable and, and workable on television. All that was done in the UK. Um, I had to figure out a way to do that and then deliver off the negatives back to Henson Associates in the United States. So they held the original copyright mm -hmm. in the material. And it was possible to do that. Um, I can go through the technical side if, if you want. Well, a little we, deeper than we want to get, but let's just talk about the main sort of... The main sort why, of thing Why is, did you want to do that? I, think I want to do that because question. two reasons. One, with, re with regard to the puppeteers, the UK rates were very high. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you had a lot of income that came into the UK, you could end up paying higher UK taxes than you would in the United States. So even though the United States gave you a credit for the UK taxes paid, it wouldn't help if those taxes were well in excess of the rates that were applicable in the United States. Mm -hmm. The same was true on the corporate side. On the corporate side, the rates, I don't remember exactly what the rates were, but they were much less in the United States. So we didn't want to leave anything back in the United Kingdom other than the what we took as an arm's length profit for the actual physical production of the film. And usually that meant, uh, and though I negotiated this both on the television side as well as on the feature film side, a production contract that would require payment of all the costs of the entire production plus a profit element, which you then negotiated with the revenue. Sometimes it would be 5%, 7.5%, sometimes 10%, just depended on the, the luck of the draw sometimes who you negotiated with at the revenue. But that left an, an acceptable profit element in the UK and allowed the delivery for, of the film <clears throat> to the ultimate owner of the rights, which in this case would have been Henson Associates in the United States. Mm -hmm. This turned out to be extremely fortunate because uh, not knowing how the Muppets were going to turn out, uh, we... Uh, we we did five years worth of performance. It then went into syndication in the United States. And I think the original deal, and I think this is probably public knowledge, is over $100 million for the syndication of five years of Muppet shows. So literally none of that was taxed by the UK. It was all back in the US. At the lower rate. At the much lower rates. So... You, know, you mentioned feature films there briefly. Um, how did the Muppet movie sort of? Fit oh, that that's actually a, an interesting story. It's kind of a story on myself. Um, after we did the television series, uh, Muppets did a film called the, the first well, the first Muppet movie. It was very successful. Uh, I, I don't know what its uh, aggregate gross income was, but it was high. So then um, the, the general counsel, Al Gottesman, came back to me and said, look, Chuck, we've got two, two films we want to do and we want your help. First one is the second Muppet movie. And it looks like that's going to be a real winner. So we need some pretty sophisticated tax planning to deal with that. Okay. And the, and the second film we want to do is a, is a flight of fancy 
by Jim Henson. He, he's got a film that he wants to do. He's going to call it The Dark Crystal. And it's really dark. It's hard to say it really belongs <laughs> at children's television workshop, much less an, an, an independent. very much of the children's associates. 80s milieu of scarring the children with children's. That's children. right. I mean, That's I, right. So um, we, we think we should do the, the Dark Crystal in the United States. It's got a $25 million budget and it's going to probably be lost. And we we need the losses in the U.S. because we're otherwise pretty successful. We're a pretty successful company. So I went through a complicated structure to set up the second Muppet movie through a Netherlands Antilles production company, which subcontracted a lot of the work into a U.K. production company. The Netherlands Antilles company had the copyright to the film. And through other structures, we could license the, um, the films worldwide uh, through a Netherlands Antilles production company. And because we were treated as an active trade of business, albeit outside the United States and outside the United uh, the Netherlands Antilles, but nonetheless treated as an active business, we could we could store the profits derived from that film abroad. And in, again, in those days, although we were what's called a controlled foreign corporation, the income could be stored. It wasn't immediately taxable. So it meant it could be reinvested tax-free. As you would guess, because of the way I've just described this, the second Muppet movie turned out to be a bomb. Hmm. <laughs> it not only lost money, well, it not only made no money, it lost money. And I was sitting with all those losses outside the United States, which I couldn't use. Whereas The Dark Crystal turned out to be the sleeper film, I think it was 1982, whatever it was, and it made a fortune and it became a cult film and it's still around. <laughs> and so there, there was a situation where me, great tax lawyer, did a marvelous structuring job and it came out exactly the opposite way from, from a normal business uh, analysis lost the money abroad and made the money in the United States. Yeah, this was, I don't know, maybe this says more about me than you, but this was one of my favorite little anecdotes in the book because normally uh, these sort of memoirs, it's about how genius someone is and how great they are. And like they're the jet-setting genius attorney who's you know, the secret behind Jim Henson is me. And um, this one, it was like, uh, you rarely do you see this sort of, look at this complex genius thing I did. I'm so smart. And then at the end of it, like I have outsmarted myself. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm happy to, I'm happy so to thoroughly in a way that nobody could have foreseen that you, can, you just throw your hands up yeah I guess I should tell you uh, as I the, the final piece of the Muppet story which for me was one of the most ex enjoyable things I did almost as a practicing lawyer I was doing work for Chris Christopherson on uh, his work he was doing a European tour and he performed in the UK and I did his work here. Um, I get a call from, again, Al Gottesman, the general counsel of Henson. He said, listen, Chris Christopherson's going to the Muppet Show and maybe you'd like to go see it live. I said, yeah, sure, I'll be happy to do that. So I in this day and age, Chris there. Christopherson, big giant star. Yeah. Um, so Chris Christopherson, and I, I mean, I took a couple of friends. I took my wife and my friend. Um, we went out to the 
Hill Street Studios and saw the filming of The Muppet Show. What I didn't know, of course, was that this turned out to be one of the top Muppet shows in the history of five years of The Muppet Shows because it was Chris Christopherson singing, help me make it through the night to Miss Piggy. You know, take the ribbon from my hair. <laughs> oh, Chris, you're so sexy. And it was hysterically funny. I mean, and because a lot of it was impromptu. <laughs> it was, and it turned out to be one of the top 10 Muppet shows in the history of the Muppet show. So anybody who wants to Google Chris Christopherson dash Miss Piggy will be able to see that. And I can tell you that I saw it live and it was so entertaining. I mean, it's just one of those spots you'll never forget as a, you know, even as a lawyer. <laughs> and it was, was that Frank Oz was doing Miss Piggy or is that somebody else? Frank, well, right exactly. Frank Oz was Miss mm -hmm. Piggy. Famously Yoda also. Yes, That's exactly. the name people should know at this point. Yoda. And of course, he was just kind of with a puppet kind of molesting for lack of a better term chris christopherson <laughs> well frank oz is a great human being he's of so course. funny yeah. he's so warm he's he's just a terrific personality uh, i like him a lot and i did do the yoda thing and and it did raise the issues that i have described to you as to how he, how he attacks yoda <laughs> so, so Moving on from the, the Muppets and, and this sort of adventure, um, you also did some work with Michael Jackson, um, but you did it in sort of an interesting space. So do you mind talking about that? Sure, sure. Well, actually, ironically, had the same uh, entry point that uh, I had with Henson. That is, it started with a tiny, well, not tiny, but a very small matter where um, John's entertainment counsel, a well-known entertainment lawyer in California named John Branca, called me and asked, I knew him because I'd done some speaking, writing and editing in the tax world. Uh, anyway, he called me and said, Michael was performing in the UK. Could I help? And I did represent Michael in connection with his performance. I don't remember what year it was, but it was it was several years before the major deal he did over here. And then I would have been probably two or three years later, John calls me and said, listen, we've got a real issue for Michael. He, he has started to buy publishing music publishing catalogs, and he's interested in buying the ACC uh, communications-owned publishing group, which is called ATV Music, uh, of five or six catalogs, one of which was the Beatles catalog. And Michael's been excited about the possibility of buying it. But it's a complicated situation because Michael runs his life through Michael Jackson, individual, carrying on his business in the United States. If you're going to, if he's going to be able to buy these catalogs, he's got to buy the shares of a group of UK companies. Uh, some were um, Doctors Music, you know, Doctors 
uh, soft music, some were film music, some were other catalogs, but then, of course, the main one was the Beatles catalog. But you've got to buy the shares of these companies. And all, all that exists inside these companies are the actual copyrights, the cost of which has already been written off. So you've got these very valuable assets inside five or six companies with almost no cost basis in the assets. So you got to buy all these shares and we've got to do it in a way that the owner of a controlling shareholder of ACC Communications, at that time was um, an Australian, Robert Holmes Accord. He's got to be able to repatriate all that money back to Australia because he's got a lot of debts and matters he's got to deal with in Australia. So we've got all these UK companies, no tax basis in the assets, but extremely valuable assets, especially the Beatles catalog. This so, translates to very high taxes, if this is done correctly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So if somebody bought those catalogs. I mean, you'd have to pay tax on the income at the corporate level, but you'd be limited in your ability to write off costs against that. Then you'd have to declare dividends. And if you'd financed it, then when you got the dividends, uh, you paid some tax on the dividends, you might be able to pay the interest on your financing, but you certainly couldn't pay the capital off. Mm -hmm. And that's the situation that Paul McCartney found himself in because he was the logical competitor to Michael Jackson, that is to say, he wanted to buy his copyrights back as well he might. <laughs> uh, they had the, the Beatles had sold their copyright um, catalogs be, again because of the very high UK tax rates. Um, they'd sold them years before. They still got their writer's share, but they didn't get any of the copyright income. Um, and they did get out with capital gains tax rates for the sale of the catalogs, but they lost the control of the copyrights. Mm -hmm. So Paul McCartney certainly wanted to buy him back. But the reality was, I figured out a way. Well, I won't take 100% credit on this. I mean, it, it took a lot of work and a lot of people and coming up with various alternatives. But I fig figured out a way so that Michael Jackson could buy the Beatles catalogs with pre-tax money and Paul McCartney would have had to pay with basically with post-tax money um, as I just described because of his little his little double taxation of the, of the elements of the royalties that would be owned by the catalogs. What we did with Michael <laughs> and I must confess you cannot do this today because both of these routes in the UK and the US have been closed. But what we did was we took all of the publishing catalogs outside the UK. That is, we went non-resident, took UK companies, they went non-resident to the UK, which we could do without immediate taxation. And because the UK taxed its corporations on the basis of residency of the corporations, not necessarily the place of incorporation. 
you could take those companies non-resident with no tax liability going out and no tax liability, at least UK corporate tax liability, going forward as long as the companies were properly run outside the UK. So we ran them outside the UK in the Bahamas. We had Bahamian directors and we had meetings in the Bahamas and we ran those catalogs for six months. After which Michael Jackson liquidated those companies to his own name. It was Michael Jackson trading as ATV music. Huh. The result of that was we got a step up in basis to the fair market value. Which is gargantuan. Everything right, we paid point. for. Yeah. <laughs> Pardon? Yeah. It's a gargantuan step up, right? Oh, it was, uh, it was the entire cost of the catalogs. And not only that, the, that kind of intellectual property on an acquisition was actually amortizable or depreciable. Oh, interesting. And we could, we could take a, a, just a, a pro rata share. I, mean, I won't go into the complexity of, uh, of how you uh, amortize those, but let's just take a simple example of a, amortize it over 10 years, 15 years. You've still got enormous amount of untaxed or you know, non-cash deductions against your ordinary income from the catalogs, which gave Michael the ability to finance it and earn real income from it, literally tax-free. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I mean, it, it was it, it, he could afford to pay more than Paul McCartney could afford to pay or anybody else located in the UK. So that's what we did. That that was a pretty famous deal. I mean, structurally, that's a pretty famous deal. I, I I wrote up that the description of that in the I think it was the International Fiscal Law Review in 1986 <laughs> because it was just unbelievable that we could do that, and we were just that much more competitive than any other potential purchasers. Just because of the interactions between, in that case, the UK exactly. tax law and then the US. Exactly, exactly. And you know, the great irony there is that the person who inspired and literally told Michael Jackson to start buying music catalogs was Paul McCartney, right? Exactly right. That, yeah. That's really true, and that's very ironic. Yeah, apocryphally, um, they were supposed to be working on an album together, and this, you know, whether true or not, apparently ended their friendship and then sort of scuttled a, a possible album between the two. So uh, yeah. if anyone's who's angry that never happened, you can directly blame Chuck. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of proud of that one. And I think <laughs> for Michael, it turned out to be a godsend because two years later, he put all his catalogs into a joint venture with Sony. Sony put in its catalogs and they ran a joint venture together. We were involved only on the foreign side because we had to create structures that would basically basically create partnership structures rather than corporate structures because because we didn't want any uh, the risk of, of a double level of tax um for michael because he was really running things personally through his own name mm -hmm. um so that i mean that that worked out well 
And then, of course, when Michael later got into some serious trouble, I mean, he was a profligate spender. Oh. I guess you know about that. And he got in some other trouble, too, yeah. And a lot of other troubles. Um, and he needed money. Uh, and Sony was willing to lend him money secured by Michael's interest in the joint venture catalogs. And that may have just saved him from bankruptcy. I mean, I, I don't know, but because uh, I didn't do any more after the original, the, the joint venture was finished. Um, but Michael was very fortunate because Sony was a, a very good partner and allowed, you know, gave him, I mean, he lent to, he would have had 50% of the joint venture. And I think he borrowed X tens of millions of dollars um, against the security of half of that catalog that he owned. Um, and it carried him through. And then unfortunately, you know, with his death, uh, the value of those copyrights escalated. So Michael came out financially and his family came out financially yeah. very much better than they could have had he had. It's one Michael. of those weird things where his best career move turned out to be dying towards the end. <laughs> very true. So, so that, that's my sort of quick story of uh, michael jackson <laughs> unfortunately you know we're all out of time now um but i'd, I'd love to thank chuck lubar for for being a great guest and for telling us sharing some of his fun stories here with us it's not often um, that you encounter sort of a jet set tax attorney um i think this is a very specific show that that you were a uh, sort of a perfect guest for in a, in a funny way um and again the book is called an improbable journey music, money, and the law. So if you uh, liked what Chuck had to say here and interested in hearing more, you know, we certainly didn't get to everything by uh, a long shot. So uh, check it out if you're interested. Oh, that'd Chuck, be, yeah, it's, I mean, you can, you can get it on Amazon in the US. It was released the uh, 20th of June, not, not very long ago. And then it'll be released in the UK, August 17th. So Amazon has it. Uh, I mean, the, the publishing company does distribute through Simon and Schuster. So, uh, but I have no idea how they go about allocating books. I think in this, this day and age, just saying Amazon, it's what we do for everything, right? So you might as well. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Well, I've enjoyed this very much. Yeah, Dave. Thanks so much uh, for coming it. on, Chuck. I think this was great. And uh, uh, for all our listeners, I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me on the next episode of Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. Thank you for listening to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.